You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, I first up, I have to thank everybody who's put some money into the pot to keep Solidarity Breakfast going for another year. Uh, we've been doing fairly well uh, in our Radiothon fundraising, we've still got a little bit uh, of uh, a way to go, um, but and th- and Solidarity Breakfast itself needs uh, a little bit of a helping hand. So if you've got any cash that you want to throw our way, we'd be very grateful. I have to thank all the people who have put some money in, but there are some people out there I can name who uh, I'd love to show some love to Solidarity Breakfast in particular. Uh, there's a couple of pieces of news for you. The um, last week we were um, uh, talking to you about what was going on out at the Mitre Centre in Broadmeadows, uh, where refugee supporters have been rallying, uh, and they rallied again last night uh, from 4:30 p.m. at Broadmeadows Detention Centre, 150 Camp Road. Broad Meadows in solidarity with refugees on hunger strike. Uh, this is coming from the um, Refugee Active uh, Action Collective. Fifteen people remain on hunger strike after 15 days. Fourteen of the hunger strikers are Medivac refugees who came to Australia for medical treatment. Um, uh, Vali, one of the hunger strikers, and this is from the release, said, We are on hunger strike for our freedom. We want to know what is the difference between us and other released Medivac refugees. Why are we still in detention? I came in 2018 when I was told I was approved to go to the US. When will I be released? Uh, Chris Breen from... Uh, <coughs> Refugee Action Collective says three of the hunger strikers have been hospitalised and remain in the Northern Hospital. Coalition Minister Peter Dutton claimed some Medivac refugees were released because their detention was too expensive, but no one from the government will answer the refugees' questions about what is different about their cases. The financial and human costs remain too high for these refugees. They go on to say the hunger strike is a response to the barbarity of indefinite detention. 
This month will be the start of the ninth year of detention for Medivac refugees. The government has the power to resolve the situation by releasing these refugees into the community like the other Medivac refugees. The Refugee Action Collective holds fears for the health of the hunger strikers and urges the coalition government to free the refugees. None of them should be in detention, which continues to damage their health. Any further damage to their health is entirely preventable. If you want to know more about it and you want to be part of a line that's been drawn in the sand, you can go to the Refugee Action Collective web page and uh, Facebook and you'll find out more information. Uh, We also reported, and this is a reminder of uh, the Rally for Peace, which is going to be on at the uh, Big Market today. Uh, It starts at 10, goes to 1. There's going to be speakers. There's also going to be leaflets. Uh, The primary focus is to raise awareness of uh, Australia's uh, intended involvement in a US-led war with China uh, and uh, time for Australians' independence from all big powers. Uh, The... um, this particular rally is being supported by uh, a numerous organisation, Spirit of Eureka, MUA Victoria, Pax Christi, Health and Community Sector Union Victoria, Earthworker, Melbourne Unitarian Church, Peace Memorial, Melbourne May Day Committee, ILPS, PASA, Philippines Caucus for Peace, uh, Migrant, Ankbanyan, Venezuelan Solidarity, CICD and the Western Suburbs Peace Group and the NTEU. Anyway, that particular rally is on at 10, goes to 1, it's at Vic Market. There was a bit of good news. Uh, Well, in Geelong there were a couple of things that happened uh, in terms of workers. There was a um, strike by library staff at uh, the uh, very impressive Geelong Library. If you've been to Geelong and you've seen their library, it's uh, pretty impressive. It's a very modern uh, edifice. Uh, But the library staff were on strike because they're, I I think it was, they're the 49th lowest paid um, sector in their particular uh, area of concern, their work, they're paid at uh, the 49th lowest paid library workers in Australia. So there you go. But something else happened. Um, you heard about Spitzer and the tow, uh, the large towage company that uh, turfed their workers so that they could uh, not employ locals. Uh, but uh, the MUA had a a victory uh, over the last week. Workers at the Victorian International Container Terminal at Melbourne's Web Dock have won significant improvements to job security, working hours and rates of pay following a three-year industrial campaign. This is a major victory. The Maritime Union of Australia said the agreement would deliver immediate benefits to the workforce with 75% of casual roles being converted to permanent jobs along with pay increases of between, get a load of this, 14.5 and 46.5% over four years, depending on employment classifications, which probably should tell you how uh, depressed 
their salaries were, the or the pay was. The MUA has now finalised agreements with VICT, DP World Australia, Hutchinson's, and have reached in-principle agreement with Flinders Adelaide Container Terminal, leaving Patrick's is the only container terminal operator in the country where the union has been unable to successfully conclude negotiations. The VICT Enterprise Agreement contains significant family-friendly provisions, including new rosters that reduce hours of work at the terminal, less reliance on overtime, vastly improved long-service leave provisions and the introduction of income protection insurance. This is all very good news for workers. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, as I said, it's not too late. Hey you, you who are listening... We haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website, 3cr.org.au, or call us on 9419 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff. And book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars thoughts within visions I see daring to dream my destiny You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've also been covering what's been going on down at the Collingwood Community Farm for the uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners. They are, of course, part of a a plot, a community garden that's got over 70 plots with, and it's been running for 42 years. It's a historic and uh, vibrant community of gardeners and uh, they were given an order of desist uh, to desist and the gates were padlocked they weren't allowed to go in and there is now a major stoush as the, it appears that uh, the Collingwood community farm has got other ideas about what should be done with this amazing community asset um, I went down to the rally that they held last Saturday and uh, this is my report. 
I'm from 3CR. Do you want to tell me why it's important? How long have you been plotting for? Eight years. Oh, so it's very important to you. Well, they're taking it off us. I've got stuff there that I can't get anywhere else, like horseradish and my ground cherries that are just ready to go and I can't get in to get them. Were you shocked? Been really important. Yes, yes, because it wasn't locked down any other COVID time and it, um, it's an excuse to redo the gardens into a market garden to make it productive but it's been very productive for 70 plots for 70 households over 42 years been very productive for them but also community development within the area the community is just amazing the people know each other they they're local yeah. Yeah. i had it because we live in the city which is in abbotsford and um my mum was a country person and she just loved coming to the farm. She's died now, but uh, that's why I applied for the plot. We waited five years to get our plot and then we got it and we've had it for eight years after that. And um, it was just great to have her come down here because everything grew for her. So, yeah. Connection. Yep. And uh, she was from Europe, so... She knew how to grow stuff. She used to laugh at me and say, ho, 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 you're going to grow stuff. But I did, and I've learnt lots along the way. Yeah. I'm from 3CR, so I was wondering why it's important for you to be here. We have a plot, a garden plot here, and uh, we grow many vegetables, seasonal and otherwise. Um, we were shocked when we turned up one day to find that the gate was locked, padlocked. And uh, without warning, um, a, a very aggressive action for a spurious purpose. Um, the farm management um, has, has obtained a, a, a report from are not a very reputable organisation and on the basis of that report they've closed the plots down. We can't get access to the, the vegetables that we've planted. Did, did you think you had more control? Were you surprised you had no control over it? No control over? Over the garden. And were you surprised that someone could do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We are tenant plotters, I mean, and they act like a landlord and they've just barred us from entering the properties that we've paid rent for. We, that sounds, you know, sounds illegal to me. Can you shut a tenant out unilaterally by putting a padlock on the door? That's outrageous going on for some time this is what it appears to be um, and this is the way they've just put it through but there's no way this has happened in a few weeks this is a plan that's been going on for at least the last year and probably longer by the look of it people that are involved, a lot of different organisations and government that have all involved in that plan and it looks like everyone's caught that maybe they weren't really informed what was happening I don't know because there's sort of development plans for the greater farm that seems to be they, they want to 
put a lot of those plans into action on that's on the garden space which you know they, there's other space that they could use for that but um so you know we've tried to contact all sorts of different people and organizations and there's a strange silence that it seems that people have been involved in another plan that we didn't know about so what organizations um, well, you know, even things like Gardening, Gardening Australia, you know, Street, a lot of so different social enterprises have been involved in it and, and different government departments. It shows up on different government websites, various, you know, um, grants and job plans and all these other things that are happening. That it, suddenly it seems that they're all interconnected. And um, I'm not saying that no, those plans are not good plans. I'm just saying that you don't destroy a unique space that is creating value and sanity for so many people within and without the garden you know we can work out a way that all of that can happen together it doesn't have to be one or the other you don't these people are really hurting people are falling into depression people are really deeply impacted by this and by the way that it's happening and the farm is sort of saying well you can call us and come in and we'll give you somewhere to get some fresh food or to do some gardening somewhere else but not really telling us what that is but also it ignores the fact that our deep distress is coming from the loss of the gardens. This is about giving you charity when in actual fact community gardens are about self-empowerment. Yeah that's it Um, and the community gardens as I understand it have a different charter here that the farm is here to help um, that you, you have to go back a little bit in history. Like the Collingwood area, there was the Collingwood Council and the Fitzroy Council and the Richmond Council. There was not Yarra back then. And um, th- this was created for the Collingwood area, which had a lot of um, like public housing, poor families, poor kids that couldn't get out to, you know, to see animals or real farms or anything like that. It had a lot of immigrants that had nowhere to grow veggies and they approached and asked for this space to be given to them. It was given to them, so the Charter of Use for the Greater Farm and the Charter of Use for the Gardens is a bit different, actually. So if anyone that wants to look at the gardens and say that, you know, it's not for what the farm has been created, the the gardens are doing what they were created to do. My name's Barry Hahn. I live in Clifton Hill, and like many people, I've had a plot here at the gardens for um, about eight years. It's great to see so many people here, and today's conversation is very much about the land. It's obviously the gardens down by the community farm. And look, I'm going to MC. We're going to be here for hopefully no more than an hour. You're going to hear from um, a number of people about both the decision that's occurred and the impact it's having not only on the gardens and the gardeners but the wider Yarra community and we don't want to see the Yarra community divided and we certainly don't want to see increasing divisions between our community the garden community and the farm community because we should be working as one community anyway that's what I wanted to say just from the outset Um, I'd like to um, acknowledge Councillor Edwin Cro- Edward Crossland, who's here with us today. There'll be a number of other speakers. Yarra Council, um, recently the Mayor put out a formal public statement announcing that the Council view is that the farm should reopen the gate and work with us to address the safety concerns and get back on the land. That's all we've asked for. Respectful dialogue. 
we've not broken the law, we've not done anything wrong, um, and we're a great community and we're a diverse community, and you'll get to hear that from a few of the people who are going to speak. And honestly, if anyone feels they've got questions or comments they want to make, we'll try and keep the pace up and get everyone's voices heard. So thank you for being here. But look, as I said, we shouldn't have to be here. We should be going about our normal Saturday activities, whether that be in the market, in the farm, or in the garden. But unfortunately, this is where we are, and we need to take a step forward, and we need to do that together and stay united. So look, on that note, I'm just going to briefly mention um, the format. I'm going to invite Tim Hat um, Hanfield, who's our um, campaign leader, I think we should call him. Um, Kim, Tim's been doing some amazing work in the last couple of weeks. He's going to outline what's happened, why we're here, and to some extent what we need to do next. Then we're going to hear from a few of the gardeners about the impact that this issue is having for, on them personally and the wider community. And then we'll hear from Councillor Steve Jolly, who has been supportive from the outset and has actually brokered a deal with a union, the CFMEU, to actually come in free of charge and address the safety issues, which should happen tomorrow in my mind. And I believe um, we'll also have a statement from uh, the member for Melbourne, Adam Bant. Uh, one of his staff, I believe, will be here to make a, a statement. Yeah, Damien's here. Uh, Adam has also on Facebook publicly uh, supported this campaign and he's come and met with us online recently, so you'll hear uh, his views expressed as well. So thanks everyone. I'll hand over to Tim. Thanks Barry, that's great. I just, just to start off, I just wanted, I, I thought it might be uh, useful just to, to remind everyone that where we're standing today would be surrounded by multi-storey apartments if not for public action, okay? So we've been stonewalled by the uh, people that run the farm, the Committee of Management, over a period of about three or four weeks, and uh, everyone sees this is a situation, people in power who are choosing to be unaccountable, untransparent, and trying to push through their own agenda. So I want to briefly give you an overview of the situation as it's emerged. And it's, a lot of it has been kind of hidden in the, the, the statements by the farm that have tried to confuse the issues and make it about safety. So what's ultimately emerged is it's an issue about uh, a developer, which is the farm, uh, that wants to redevelop our gardens and turn it into a social media, uh, sorry, a social enterprise model. So the farm has transformed itself from a traditional not-for-profit into a social enterprise model. So their, their public statements are full of management speak, uh, all these, nothing to do with community, okay? So, and they followed the typical developer's playbook. What did they do? They disenfranchised the stakeholders. The stakeholders are the plotters who worked that place for 42 years. Last year, they removed our vote. Throughout the 40 years, we were always farm members entitled to vote or stand for committee of management at the annual general meetings. By executive decision last year, they removed that. So when we resubscribed for the current year, we were no longer members. Farm uh, plotters have since then started joining the farm by buying the annual ticket for entry, which gets you membership. Yesterday, they started cancelling those memberships with no notification. People started getting emails that your membership has been cancelled. Incredible behaviour by a committee of management. So that was the first thing, disenfranchises. Second thing was allocate plots to your mates. They talk about inclusion. They, may, they say that we're not inclusive. 
Over the last two years, I've had a systematic program. When someone left their plot, they retired, maybe moved from the area, it didn't go to someone on the waiting list, as their rules state it should. They allocated it to other not-for-profits and social enterprises. So now there's only 55 of those plots are allocated to actual community members. It's absolutely outrageous. And that was done. Again, no, no negotiation, no consultation, just executive decision. There, in all the years I've been involved, seven years, and historically, I know from others, more than 10 years, the farm has never, ever had all of the plots allocated. How is that inclusive? Right? They've got a set of rules how they're supposed to manage those plots. They're supposed to maintain a waiting list. If you're a resident of the city of Yarra and you don't have garden space of your own to grow veggies, you are entitled to apply for a plot. And people have waited years, years and years to get a plot. And then they work it and they love it. They join the community. They work with everyone down at the garden. Okay, so next step. What's the developer's tactic? Lockout. No notice. They staged a lockout. It was under the cover of the COVID restrictions. The, cl the plots were never closed throughout the whole long lockout last year. And then suddenly we had a little lockout. Great. Locks go in the gate, can't go in. We said, why are you doing this? You have to reverse the decision. Silence. Three days later, email comes. It's going to be a meeting for announcement. Major announcement. Okay. We're there on the Zoom meeting. Can't ask questions. The speech was given. And what did they say? They said, we've had a safety report. It is so dangerous that the only way to solve these safety issues, these star pickets, these snakes, these uneven paths, these bits of wire, is to bulldoze the entire site, to destroy 42 years of our cultural heritage. No, they said, but you could ask questions. The questions were hidden in the Zoom meeting. You didn't know what the questions were. I was sitting there. Where are the questions? There are no questions. Of course there were questions. They just weren't showing them. So we approached them. They agreed to a meeting. A meeting was held. We discussed. We said, right, this is a terrible situation. The public support was starting to build. They're saying, it's so horrible. We're having to deal with all these people sending these horrible emails about us developing the plots, which is what they said they were going to do in the meeting. You can quote them. They said, we're going to clear the plots and we're going to redevelop it as a new community garden under their social enterprise model, a business model, not a community model, right? So they, they met with us. We had a discussion. We said, this needs to stop. We need to do a joint statement. Let's discuss the issues and we'll work out a statement together. We'll meet three days later with the statement. One of the, uh, Nina, uh, Nina, who was one of the Collins, who was the, one of the committee members in the meeting, said she would draft a statement. We sent an email after the meeting. We said, this is what we want. We want to fix these issues. And at this point, the CFMEU had already offered to fix all of the safety issues for free, which they reckon would take a couple of weeks, okay, for nothing. We said, take up that offer, fix the safety issues, get rid of that reason for closing the plots, let the gardeners back in. If you then want to have a discussion about what these plots should be, then have a consultation, have a debate about it, put it in public. Say what you want, argue your point. If you win, you get to do it. If you lose, well, we stay there. But let the gardeners back in now. You know, you have no reason. You've got a solution to the safety issues, which is your only reason for locking us out. So what did they do? Next tactic, they stonewalled us. They canceled the next meeting. There was no meaningful communication from that point for three weeks. 
We wrote to them repeatedly. We outlined all the facts. They didn't dispute a single fact. You can read reams of emails that we sent saying what we want. We were clear. We said, if we're going to negotiate, they said, oh, we can't negotiate with you directly. We have to have a third party. We are so intimidated by you community gardeners that we need a third party. And by the way, we have to contact all the stakeholders. Oh, we thought we were the stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders? Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning must be consulted. The Wurundjeri, who we acknowledge as the traditional owners of this land, and absolutely they should be consulted about it. But, you know, when we finally spoke to the Wurundjeri elders, they said, we don't have to think about this. Apparently they didn't consult them. Uh, and everyone else, I, you know, I can't even remember the list, but there was a list. So what they were doing, they were redefining the stakeholders to be anyone except the person who had a plot in that garden. So that was the, that was the, 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 um, the stonewalling. Okay, that went on for three weeks. And then what do they do? They say, okay, we're gonna, we can't find anyone to negotiate with you, so, uh, but we'll get back to you. Then they put out a PR statement. They bring in the, the spin doctors to try and solve the problem for them. And that was where they, an absolutely massive mistake because in that statement, they basically confirm all of our worst fears. They are totally committed to destroying everything on that site. So it was a whole statement saying, you know, these are the questions that have been answered. What are you going to do after you clear it? Uh, well, they said, well, we don't have a budget for this new plan to make a new community garden. We don't have a timeline. We don't have a plan. So while we figure that out and fundraise, we'll turn it into a market garden, a commercial market garden, like the next paddock, which was oh. the goat paddock, which is now a market garden, which oh. is part of their social enterprise, their network, where they distribute food through all these other companies. Now, we don't, we don't have any issue with social enterprises. They're wonderful. They do a lot of good. But a community garden is not a social enterprise. It's not a business. So what has to happen, this community garden needs to be given back to the gardeners on a proper community garden model, just like pretty well every other community garden in Melbourne. We'll form an incorporated association. We need to engage with DELP, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, who oversees Crown Land, which it is, and they need to give us a licence and agreement to run that as a community garden, like every other community garden, by the gardeners, for the gardeners, with their say-so. Okay, so what can, what can you do? We are so thrilled to see you all here today. It's absolutely fantastic. What you can do is you need to tell all your networks. If you're on Facebook, let them know. We've got a Facebook group. Get people to join that. Write to the politicians. Write to the silent Labor politicians, right? Richard Wynne, Lily Ambrosio and Daniel Andrews. Tell them what is going on. Tell them it's not good enough and they have to speak up. We have been contacting, people have been going to Richard Wynne's office day after day. They've been ringing. They've written incredible letters, stories of you know, the pain and suffering they're undergoing through this whole process, and there has been deafening silence from his office. He needs to speak up. He needs to say what his position is. He has spoken to the committee management. They've written to us, telling us that they've consulted him. Right? You know what happened? We, I rang his office. They said that he put a call into Connor. He was concerned about what was going on. It took Connor a week to return his call. Who's Connor? Connor is the, <laughs> is the CEO of the children's farm. Well, 
Okay. This, well, CEO. Apparently, she's a CEO. Uh, why the Children's Farm needs a CEO, I cannot imagine. But it's part of the whole management speak kind of culture that they've got there. So she wouldn't return his call for a week, and he won't make a statement about what his view is on this. He needs to come out in public and tell us. Okay. So, so sign, sign our petition, megaphone.org.au, digging in gardeners. Uh, Get on the Facebook page, write to the politicians, let them know what you think. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Anna and I have, I've lived in Abbotsford for about 40 years and I've had a very long history with the farm here. We had a plot down here back in the 80s and I was just so upset when um, they suddenly just closed the gate. We were, we've been going down there for years. I'm upset because many families here have grown vegetables, hundreds of families have grown vegetables, they've had exercise, they've um, gone out in the fresh air and to suddenly lock us out like that was just quite a shock to me because the farm has been there for so long. My dad used to farm down here, my husband, my children, my grandchildren. We, like many others in this community, have put thousands and thousands of hours volunteering at the farm. Um, back in the old days, we used to go and feed the, help them feed the animals, water, weed, and we've, we've just been locked, locked out completely. So I just hope that the farm reconsiders their decision because as local people, we've always supported the farm and now they've lost whatever goodwill they've had in this local community, they're losing. So I really would like them to reconsider the, the decision, unlock the gates and let us back in. Thank you. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. And me. May- 
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And yes, they're going to make a stand. And so they should. More strengths to their arm down at the uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners r- Revolt against uh, the lock gates. Uh, the um, Quite right, too. This business about remembering that uh, the fight for the farm in, you know, the 80s. I mean, it's, it's absolutely outrageous stuff. Um, to, this week, uh, there was the uh, inquest into the death of Raymond Noel Lindsay, who uh, was a young Aboriginal man who uh, died in a um, un, uh, unregistered uh, car when he went off to buy some uh, cake mix one night, uh, and the police took uh, decided that they were going to uh, chase him because the car was unregistered. And uh, as they say, uh, driving an unregistered car shouldn't be a death sentence. And uh, here's a report that, uh, thank you very much to Iris Lee, uh, who was outside the the, uh, court uh, when uh, his uh, people spoke to the gathered uh, um, people outside the coroner's court. We hear from a media conference held by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Jodhua Foundation and the family of Raymond Knoll on the last day of the coronial inquest on the 2nd of July 2021. Raymond died in 2017. Raymond was a proud Gunai, Gunujamara and Wiradjuri man. Raymond Knoll was a gentle giant who loved his family Ray died in a police chase that began when he was driving home from a Sunday night dessert run from his local supermarket. The family are calling for justice and change. Between 1989 and 2017, Aboriginal people made up 22% of all police pursuit deaths, 
the highest rate of overrepresentation of Aboriginal killings in any form of custody. To represent them through this most painful of processes, the dignity, the courage, the strength of the Thomas family is very moving indeed, and we hope that they will find some solace through this coronial inquest. For four years, Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas's family has wanted and waited for answers. For four years, they've advocated for Raymond Noel for justice, for accountability for his tragic death, and the hope that no other family should feel the sorrow and grief that they've had to endure, and indeed will continue to endure for the rest of their lives. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you to everybody who supported us over these last two weeks. Very stressful and traumatic time. Uh, as we seek the answers to, to what happened to our son. Now, Raymond Noel was a, an absolutely beautiful, kind-hearted person. He had a beautiful nature, and he's very protective of his family and friends and community. Whenever he, he walked into a room, he'd light it up because he was, he was six foot eight, so he really stood out and affectionately referred to in the, around the family and community as uh, the gentle giant. Mm. He is deeply missed by us, of course, the family and, and extended family and the community in Melbourne. His brothers are absolutely devastated. They were really close. And he, he was, now he, there's a missing link with him being gone. This hole in our heart will never heal. We'll be there forever. I can't describe the impact that it has on Debbie. His mother, her grief is different to that of mine being the father. It's more deeper because She's the one that carried him for nine months and brought him into this world. And I thank her for that. We want those responsible to be held accountable and for them to realise the grief and trauma that they have caused through their actions in the pursuit on that night. For something as minor as just an unregistered car, that, that is not a crime. Raymond was not a criminal, he wasn't drunk, he wasn't high on drugs or anything. He just he just drove to the shops that night and um, to buy some chocolate and cake mix on that Sunday night. And uh, they decided to pursue based on the fact that it was just an unregistered car. No, no crime had been committed. We demand justice for Raymond and hope for changes of the police pursuit policies so this doesn't happen to any other family to suffer the, the pain and suffering that we're going through and we'll, we'll go through for the rest of our lives. The process of this inquest and hearing the facts 
especially from the eyewitnesses, has helped me deeply, as, as it is now clear in my mind what actually happened on that night. And I, I could just imagine the fear that Raymond must have been experiencing that night, right up until the very tragic end. I would like to thank Coroner Ollie and the court staff, Troy Williamson, our legal team, Tony and Joel, the family and the supporters who have been here throughout this whole process. It means a lot to us that, that you're here with us, standing with us, seeking justice for Raymond. Jadawa Foundation, absolutely magnificent what they do and their support for families in, in these situations and, and what we go through. And last but not least is Pals, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Thank you. We'd also like to introduce yeah, April Day um, to also share some of her, her, her thoughts as well. Um, I would first want to thank everybody for being here this past fortnight to support Uncle Ray and Aunty Debbie and the family. Um, it's been an extremely difficult time for them um, and myself know how grueling the coronial process is. Um, you know, Ray was a beautiful man and gentle giant and um, an unregistered vehicle should never be a death sentence. Um, what we've seen here during the coronial inquest is how flawed the police investigations is once again um, and how conflicting um, the statements have been from police to actually what happened from the witness accounts. It was extremely disappointing to see that uh, Victoria Police had decided to bring uh, uniformed police officers here on Wednesday while the family are grieving and are only trying to seek questions, uh, answers uh, to what happened to their son. It has only perpetrated more violence on this family and has caused more harm and grief. Um, I guess what we take here from his um, shows how beautiful Ray is from his family statements and how um, simply being an Aboriginal man in this country is dangerous. Um, thank you and I hope you continue to support the Raymond Knowles family. Thank you. Be scared of the dark I'll be there to hold you tight Your foes aren't too large I'm your champion, I'm ready to fight I'll protect you all that I can And I will love you Cause I'm your loving man So much love you have given to me 
I've ever known As far as I can see I'll give you all of what I own And I'll protect you all that I can And I will love you Cause I'm your loving man protect you all that I can and I will love you cause I'm your loving man yes I'm your Hey you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002 and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday July the 5th to Friday July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Thoughts within, visions I see, daring to dream my destiny. week on Over the Wall, we speak to Vimiac, which is the peak Victorian organisation for people with a lived experience of mental health or emotional challenges. And we're going to talk today to Neil about the NDIS 
and how that's impacting people with mental health conditions and their experiences of NDIS. Neil Turton Lane, welcome to 3CR's Over the Wall. Neil, you work at Vimiac. And could you begin by please describing your advocacy work and role with Vimiac in the community? Vimiac is a big non government organisation representing people with lived experience of mental illness or distress. And we work right across Victoria's health sector, supporting people who are impacted by mental illness or their psychosocial disability and provide a couple of different types of advocacy to people, general and NDIS, NDIS-related advocacy, which focuses on NDIS appeals, but also provide support to people who are encountering a hard time using the NDIS, having a hard time finding providers or want to make a complaint. Helping people with finding the right service provider, could you maybe give an example of type of work you've done there? Some of the issues that you can assist or how you can assist people with getting a service provider that suits their needs? I think the transition to the NDIS has been really difficult, particularly for people with a psychosocial disability, finding providers who understand and can work with people who have mental health challenges. And sometimes that causes a lot of conflict and misunderstanding and a whole lot of stuff going on there. We'll sit down with the person, we'll find out what's going on for them to explore what their options may be about maybe giving another worker or if that service is not cutting a mustard, looking elsewhere. Yeah, just encouraging people. The NDIS is about choice and control. People shouldn't be pushed around or feel that they don't have choices. Very difficult for people, particularly in rural areas, where there are less services. There are a lot more services in metropolitan areas. The further out you go, the less choices people have. Hopefully it's a problem that over time will be addressed when new providers come in who realise there is a market there. Yeah. The NDIS, it's still a very immature scheme and it's taken a lot longer for that kind of market side of things to actually to measure up. It's taken time to catch up with psychosocial needs and supporting people with mental health and disability and things that people might encounter as difficulties with the system. Are there some examples you can think of that people have encountered as they've been assessed in the past or dealt with service providers that where the assessor assessment or the service provider has had a complete misconception about the person's needs or about mental health and living with a mental health condition? There are a lot of services out there who want to provide minimal support and accrue maximum amount of hours from you. And that's not really in a person's interest. We often encounter people finding it's really hard to contact their service providers. Service providers aren't listening to them when they tell them they need specific support and disrespecting of people. And we hear that from providers when we talk to them really can't believe the way that they talk about their clients sometimes. You know, all those kind of things are hugely concerning and the NDOs is trying to do something about it now. They've developed a recovery-orientated practice framework supporting providers and disability support workers 
to eventually get the right kind of training so they'll know how to respond to people and try to understand what's going on for an individual. Yeah. What are some of the things in the development of a recovery-oriented framework with the NDIS that you think would be particularly helpful? The key one is being able to respond to trauma and the way that trauma manifests in people's lives. Trauma makes people uncertain about how they'll be treated by people they don't know, sometimes quite easily impacted by comments by other people, reinforces past experiences of trauma that people have had. So that continues to impact on people. And so a better understanding around what people's needs are and and what they might have been through We're talking about people who have had poor, unfortunate childhoods or experiences throughout their lives, violence, abuse, you name it. You need to be able to kind of like meet a person where they are at. And if they're responding in a way that you perhaps weren't expecting, maybe realise it might be due to their trauma and, and the willingness to understand what that might be and what their real needs are if you're going to provide support. As a past NDIS worker myself, I've thought about that a lot too because one of the things which is there to protect people's confidentiality, as a worker, you don't know a lot about their case background and their condition. So going in as a worker, I've always felt it's very important to come from a complete trauma-informed care perspective, avoiding any topics that could be triggering but also the way that we even approach the physical space with someone just always waiting for the person to lead with their cues, for them to be comfortable, not push people to do things. It's really about creating that safe space where the participant, the person themselves, feels that they're in control of the situation. And if they want to reveal any information such as, I'm finding this really difficult because this is triggering for me, That's up to them. But as a worker, we can try and create a caring and safe space. Yeah. There is a tendency to want to help or fix people, but (laughs) fixing a lifetime of harm and challenges is not something anyone really can do. And it's not really what people want, but they do want to be listened to and understood. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen too often. And with recovery-orientated practice and work, it's about understanding that recovery is not always a linear, one-line, straight direction process towards recovery. There's times of setbacks, there's times of unwellness, which are also opportunities for increased learning and, and increased understanding of support needs for people too. Absolutely, and it's a lifelong process. It's not something that happens quickly. Like People's lives may change. People will live with problems and sometimes they'll surface more than others. Some people, it's certain times of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. We do need to be able to support and understand, you know, if they have a psychosocial disability and they're on the NDIS, it's pretty well damn significant. You don't get onto the NDIS very easy. The people who do really have quite severe, enduring, lasting disabilities caused by their illness and their, and their trauma. And we need to be able to respect that and work with people and work at their pace. 
and be there to encourage them and be human and treat them like another person by validating people's experiences and on a journey as we all are, we're all on journeys. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, if you were hoping to hear from Kevin, uh, this is the week that was, yet again he's missing in action. Something to do with the uh, uh, NBN, Uh, it was able to be broken when he fell over or knocked the the, uh, connection out. So it's not fixed yet, so (laughs) that's probably a little bit of a... uh, reflection on the efficiency of NBN. Anyway, by the by, he should return. Uh, nothing nothing uh, terrible has happened, but uh, he hasn't been able to uh, help us out on Solidarity Breakfast with his scathing uh, collection of details over the, the week in a satirical fashion. Uh, we're coming up to the last half hour of Solidarity Breakfast this morning and uh, what I've got for you is this really interesting conversation that was uh, a presentation by a person called Professor Hanny Han. She's from the John Hopkins University in Baltimore and it's talk. she's talking about her book which is Prisms of the People and the reason for why it's interesting is because she researches how organisations are effective. And uh, this is uh, interesting for anybody who is interested in social change. So let's kick off. I I sort of have two hats that I wear. So I direct an institute at Johns Hopkins University called the SNF Agora Institute, um, which we have a mission to try to strengthen global democracy and try to think about um, how we harness the resources of the university to try to make an impact on strengthening democracy around the world. And then I also run a research lab called the P3 Lab, and we call it P3 because we're interested in trying to understand how we make the participation of ordinary people possible, probable, and powerful. So people have to want to participate, they have to be able to participate, and then it actually has to matter. And increasingly, it feels like more and more the work that we're doing focuses on that last question of powerful, which is meaning Um, How do you make the participation of ordinary people actually matter? Like so often it feels like all over the world, we can see people pour into the streets as we're seeing today in lots of places around the world and government seems not to respond. And so it feels like we're in this moment right now where we have to really understand how we build the kind of vehicles that we need to translate the participation and the engagement of people, of our members and our, our base into the actual kind of political power that we need to make the change that we want. So that's what this book and this project is really about. Um, But before I get into that, just for those of you who I haven't had a chance to get to know yet, just to introduce myself a little bit. um, I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Texas. Um, My parents immigrated from Korea. They were originally refugees from North Korea and then moved down to South Korea and then eventually moved to the United States where I was born. 
Um, and so much of my life growing up was the, was the experience of watching my parents try to figure out what it meant to raise a family in the United States. Um, and so if you can hopefully see the picture on your screen, like I'm the little girl in the orange sweater, you know, my parents took us to Mount Rushmore, which is a national park in the United States that has the heads of presidents carved into it because it felt like that's what you had to do if you grew up in America. And my parents, when they originally came from Korea, even though they came from well-established families in Korea, they sort of showed up in the United States with the proverbial $100 in their pockets. And so my mom cleaned people's houses, my dad mowed people's lawns, and they tried to just figure out how to make it. And a lot of what I saw was watching them kind of climb that social ladder in a sense. And the reason why I tell that story is because I think it's really relevant to why I do the work that I do. Um, because it wasn't until I went to college that I really learned about social movements and organizing. And I think it really spoke to me immediately. And the reason why is because at the heart of what makes organizing or social movements work is this idea of transformation. And that was one of the lessons I think that I learned as a child of immigrants, not because anyone ever said the words to me, but because it was just there in the background of our lives that what we do as humans is try to transform ourselves so that we can transform our families and transform the world around us. And that's what I saw my parents trying to do. And that's what really spoke to me when I first began to learn about what organizing is. And so over the course of my career, a lot of the work that I've been trying to do is trying to understand, you know, how do we pull people off the sidelines of public life and engage them in the work of constructing the kind of world and the community that they want to live in? And I think that, that was probably some of the work that I talked with you all about last time that I was in Australia. Um, but this last book, I think, really came out of the sense that we're in this moment right now where it feels like so many of the systems that we have, especially in the United States, but also in many of the many advanced democracies around the world, the systems themselves seem to be failing. Um, it feels like they are not equipped to be able to address the kind of most pressing challenges that we face as a global community. And so the, this book kind of started with this question of how do we begin to equip people to transform a failing system, right? How do you people learn to act and act with power when the system itself seems like it's falling apart in some ways? And we landed on this analogy of a prism. Um, if I was there in person, I'd hold up a prism and I'd try to shoot some light through it so you could see it. But, you know, what a prism does is it takes um, white light in and then it transforms that white light into this vector of rainbows right, that carries as far as the light can see. And I think it felt like that's what, those are the kind of movements that we need, right? We need movements that can take people in and tra transform, transform their engagement into a vector of power that carries as far as the light can see. And what's interesting about a prism is that its ability to trans transform white light into rainbows is not a function of how big the prism is, right? It's a function of the design choices that you make at the heart of the prism. Right? It's a function of what the kind of structure is of the, of the crystal that you create inside the prism itself. And that's what we found really with these movements is that the movements that were the most effective at translating the engagement of their people into the power they want was really a function of the kind of design choices that they made. That essentially, you know, the way in which we construct ourselves determines, or at least it partially determines, the extent to which we're able to exercise power in the world you know, the re resources themselves are not power, right? So, so often when we think about movements that are powerful, people will say like, oh, you should look at X and X movement, they raise this many dollars, right? Or, oh, you should look at this movement because they got millions of people to sign on to their event or something like that. And we assume that just because a movement is able to garner a lot of resources, whether it be people or money or public opinion or something like that, that, that they're able to translate that into power. 
And there's so much research shows that we're living in this moment all over the world where the relationship between participation and power is broken, right? And so we know that we need organizations or movements or vehicles or unions that can translate people's participation to public, into political power, but what kind, right? What are the characteristics of the vehicles that we need to create? And so in this study, a lot of what we did is um, set out to learn from the outliers. Like we wanted to say, okay, we know in general, there's this broken link between participation and power, but what if we were look, to look at the outliers, the places where ordinary people and movements were a- actually able to translate um, power, participation into power, what do they look like? Are there any commonalities across them? But what we found was that there were a set of commonalities, that it wasn't just a, a bunch of idiosyncratic kind of lucky people that got together, but that the organizations that were most effective at translating power, it's not just that they were really effective at getting people involved, although that, of course, is a challenge for any kind of people-powered organization, but they also were imagining and architecting a different way in which we can understand politics. For example, you know, what we're doing in this table is trying to compare what are the kind of dominant models of collective action that exist both in the academic literature, but also in what we see in the kind of organizations that we build out in the world. And on the right-hand side is what is the logic of these prisms that we were observing. And the dominant kind of expectation is that a lot of um, organizations that are trying to build people power sort of have this baseline expectation of responsiveness, right? That if only I can get enough people to pour out into the streets, then political officials will have to listen, right? And in contrast, the organizations that we studied had no expectation of responsiveness from political elites. And instead, they built their entire strategy on this idea that at some point we're gonna get challenged. And those challenges are gonna come from unpredictable places. So, you, so at the, from the very beginning, they're starting from a different starting point, right? And that led to a different kind of strategic logic that we sort of play out um, in the book. So for people that had, for organizations that had this kind of baseline expectation of responsiveness, then there was sort of this idea that if they could accrue enough resources, whether it's money, public opinion, people at a protest event, different kinds of things, that essentially that would get them either media attention or get them the kind of proximity to power, right? It would get them access to the decision makers that they needed. The problem was, was often that they often mistook access to power for power itself or proximity to power for power itself. And when they were so focused on maintaining access or proximity to power, what it meant was that they were not as as nimble in negotiating or pushing elite decision makers when they actually needed to. And so the organizations that were acting more like prisms that we study, what they were able to do is they developed an independent source of power that didn't depend on access to elites. So if they got a seat at the decision-making table, they didn't earn that, they didn't earn that seat um, by getting, um, having to have elite people kind of give them access to it, but instead they earned it because of the quality and the, and the characteristics of the constituency that they are able to build. And so the, learning that kind of like key difference between access and power, access to power and power itself, kind of led to a whole set of practices that we begin to elucidate where the question essentially is, well, how do you build the kind of constituency that gives, gets you the kind of access to power that you need without depending on elite patronage? Another way to kind of think about the logic is that The key thing that these organizations were trying to maximize is instead of maximizing resources, meaning like the kinds of things that they had, instead they were thinking about it more in terms of how do we maximize strategic choice, right? So the idea is, is that if you know 
that at some point you're going to face challenge to your power, then the question is, how do you respond in that moment that you're challenged? And what these organizations are constantly thinking about is that in that moment when we get challenged, how can we make sure that we have as many tools in our toolbox, as many choices as possible to be able to respond? So that's the first point. The second point is, okay, if you want to have as many choices as possible in that strategic choice set when you get challenged, then the question is, well, what do you need? Well, it turns out what you need is you need resources that have three characteristics. They should be independent, committed, and flexible, right? And so what do we mean by that? Independent means the resources are your, your own to control as opposed to depending on access to someone else, right? So if I need to raise a million dollars in order to be able to reach and call through my entire base, that's not an independent resource, right? Because I can't access my base without getting someone to give me a million dollars. Right, committed is pretty clear, right? You want people that are committed to sticking with you. And flexible means so often the organizations that we build have commitments to like a narrow policy agenda or a narrow issue agenda, but they don't have the flexibility to stay with a movement over time as that movement is moving through the ups and downs of any political campaign. And so the question is, how do you build a constituency base that is independent, committed, and flexible, right? Those are the kind of goals that you had in whatever resource that you wanted to build. And so then the third kind of thing that we found was that certain kind of organizations were able to build constituencies with those three characteristics if they made a certain set of design choices. The things that we found that were most consistent had to do with the relationship of accountability between leaders and members, the extent to which there was a constantly evolving latticework of relationships that enmeshed people um, in relationship with each other, the extent to which people are engaged in relationships where they're um, bridging across difference, and the extent to which leadership is distributed throughout the organization. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Professor Hani Han from the John Hopkins University in Baltimore, and uh, she's ref- uh, doing a presentation around her recent book, Prisms of the People. Absolutely fascinating for anybody who wants to know about how to do an effective campaign and uh, over time. The first thing is this idea of like, how do we think about what it means to maximize strategic choice? So this is an example from a campaign that we studied in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a mid, big Midwest, big medium sized, I don't know, depending on how you think about it, medium sized Midwestern city. Ohio is a battleground state traditionally in the United States. And this is an organization that was trying to fight for universal preschool for the poorest kids in Cincinnati. And um, the way race relations in Cincinnati work is basically a black white racial divide. So essentially what they're doing is they're trying to advocate for universal preschool, publicly funded universal preschool for poor black children in Cincinnati. And we did this sort of survey with a lot of the political elites in Cincinnati where we interviewed like elected officials, philanthropists, business leaders, all sorts of people in the city and said in 2013, when you thought about education issues in your city, who do you think about? Who are you working with, right? Who are the people that you're exchanging information with? Who are the people you're strategizing with? Who are you actually aligning your resources with? And then with whom are you negotiating conflict? And what we found was that the organization that we were studying, they were basically nowhere on the map. Like they were basically on the very edge of the map in 2013, right? No one was really working with them or reaching out to them at all um, in that time. But then between 2013 and 2016, they ran this campaign where they were able to kind of organize in the Black community that was going to be most effective and essentially build a big constituency base around universal preschool so that by 2016, when the issue was actually up for a vote, 
they were at the very center of all these networks. They were at the center of the information network, of the strategy network, of the um, resource network. And interestingly, they're also at the center of the conflict network, which meant that they weren't in that network in a way that just gave them access to power, but they were the ones that were holding a lot of tension in the network. They were negotiating a lot of conflict with a lot of the other kind of elite players in Cincinnati. And it was by being able to sort of like move into that power network that they were able to expand the kind of set of strategic choices that they had. And so what does that mean? And so they did that because they had this kind of independent, committed and flexible base. And so this is just an example of a typical campaign timeline that many of you have probably seen where, you know, the campaign starts down here and then over time is trying to build more and more people. But what was really interesting about this organization in Cincinnati and all the organizations that we studied is that at every moment when they're thinking about key campaign events, so these could be um, big rallies, it could be big meetings, it could be protest events, it could be an election, you know, all the different kind of key moments that mark a campaign, they were constantly thinking about how do we build that event in a way that constantly builds our infrastructure within the constituency base, right? And so they're essentially building out this like networked infrastructure. You know, we call it kind of like a lattice work of relationships within the constituency base. And that lattice work is essentially what gave them the independence, commitment and flexibility that they needed. So that, you know, back when they're in the time between 2013 and 2016, there were certain key moments in the campaign where their power got challenged by, you know, business leaders in Cincinnati, by elected officials, by, you know, various players who were trying to block their agenda. And they were able in that moment to respond with the kind of voice of all these constituencies that they had built because, and that's what enabled them to kind of be at the center of this negotiating conflict um, map. And so you have that. And then I, we also have to sort of like one more example here that isn't from Ohio, it's from a campaign in Minnesota where what, you, the, what we want to show is that, you know, for a lot of these organizations, it's not like building out this infrastructure took a tremendous amount of time. So this is just a graph over three months where you had one paid staff organizer right there in the middle. The only person on this entire graph who's paid is that one dot in the middle. And she had three volunteer, or sorry, seven volunteer leaders around her that she organized. And that was her leadership team. And then each of those seven um, volunteer leaders were responsible for over the course of a month, recruiting 10 to 12, what they called democracy builders. And each of those democracy builders were volunteers, right? That those leaders worked with to kind of train them on how to be a democracy builder. And then a lot of our elections happened in November over the course of the next month, each of those democracy builders were then reaching, were responsible for reaching out to a whole network of voters in the community. And so what we had was this one staff person who is essentially responsible for 28,000 contacts in her community by building out this kind of infrastructure of leadership that was then able to kind of build a sort of independent, committed and flexible base that you need at scale. So that's just sort of like one, another example of that. Um, and the last kind of example that I'll meet, uh, I'll sort of highlight is um, this idea, uh, this idea becomes, okay, so let's say, you know, you kind of buy this idea that like movements work in uncertain environments and because they work in uncertain environments, they have to maximize strategic choice. And in order to maximize strategic choice, they have to invest in, in their resources, their people, right, that are independent, committed and flexible. Then the question is, 
if I'm a leader right now and I'm trying to think about how can I build up my constituency base to be independent, committed, and flexible, what are the choices that I need to make right now? And the, the kind of, um, you know, point that I want to make is that there are design choices about that heart, the heart of that prison that enable that kind of constituency. So what are a couple examples? So one analogy, and this is one that I think is probably not going to translate well to this um, setting is, um, so the analogy I want to say is like build an aspen tree as opposed to an oak tree. And I think those are very American trees. And so I don't know if it's going to translate well, but here's what I mean. So aspens are skinny little trees right? They, they're often the analogy that people use in the U.S. is that they're quaking aspens, right? So they kind of like they bend and weave in the wind. And an oak tree is like a giant old oak tree, you know, that tends to have like a really thick base. It's hundreds of years old. It's very sturdy and really stable. And what's really interesting is that one thing that really differentiates aspen trees from oak trees is that aspen trees, what we see above ground is just lots of separate trees. But if you looked beneath the aspen tree, what it turns out is that you can have an entire grow of aspens that shares one root system, right? So it's one set of roots that feeds, you know, 50 aspen trees in a grove or something like that. Whereas an oak tree has one set of roots that feeds one tree, okay? And in movements, what we found is that the kind of design choices, one of the design choices that you wanted essentially was to build a metaphorical aspen as opposed to a metaphorical um, oak, right? And the reason for that is that having a movement that had this kind of, um, now I'm like really mixing metaphors, but had like a cellular structure or this kind of, you know, a structure where you had one set of roots, like one core organizational culture, right? That then sprouted lots of different um, groups within it, subgroups within it, right, enabled that movement or that organization to have the kind of flexibility that it needed to sort of bend in moments of conflict instead of breaking, right? So, so often when movements or organizations or unions or whatever get challenged from the outside, whether it's like a big economic challenge, or it could be a political challenge, or it could be an internal challenge arising from inside, that organizations often fall apart because they don't have the flexibility to sort of like bend in response to that. And a lot of what we found was that structure, the, the way in which the organization is structured, enables people to exercise voice in moments of conflict that gave the movement the kind of flexibility that it needed in moments of tension. Right. So that would be one example of a design choice. Um, another example is that there is this idea in the management literature that talks about the difference between operational and strategic capabilities. So an operational capability is like a set of capabilities that all organizations need, need in order to operate. Right. So everyone needs an HR system. Everyone needs a donor management database. Everyone needs a volunteer management system. Everyone needs some kind of communication system. Those are all operational capabilities. Every organization needs that. But what really differentiates organizations that are, tend to be very um, powerful over time from those that don't are the second order capabilities. And the second order capabilities are strategic, right? And so the kind of tagline is, if the first order capability is about doing things right, the second order capability is about doing things right at the right time, right? So it means that the second order capability requires judgment. And um, basically what we find is that, you know, there are three processes that underlie an organization's ability to have the kind of second order capabilities that it needs. And those processes are called sensing, seizing, and transforming. 
So sensing is basically this idea that the world is changing around me all the time. I have to be able to sense the changes that are coming my way, right? Seizing is the idea that the world is changing around me all the time. How do I know which of the changes I have to be able to act on and which ones I don't? That's seizing, right? So it's essentially it's a question of governance, meaning how do I differentiate the signal from the noise, right? The world is rapidly changing. How do I know when I need to adapt and change in response to it? And how do I know when I can stay the course on my existing strategy? So that's a question of governance and seizing. And the third process is transforming. Once I figured out there's a change out there in the world that I need to change to, that I need to adapt to, is my movement, my union, my organization adaptable enough to be able to transform itself to meet the new moment? And so there are a set of capabilities then that underlie an organization's ability to do engage in these processes of sensing, seizing, and transforming. And so those are things like structure, which we talked about, the Askins versus the Oaks, um, governance, right? How, what are the processes of decision-making and deliberation within the organization? What is the extent to which that is distributed among a set of, um, a set of people versus centralized within central authority? Co-specialization is the idea of what is the extent to which people within the organization work interdependently, right? Because if they work interdependently, they're better able to transform themselves in moments that are needed versus when they don't work interdependently, then when you ask people to transform themselves, all of a sudden they don't have the kind of informal knowledge or the relationships that it takes to remake the way in which they do their work. Um, accountability is, you know, the what is the extent to which leaders are accountable to a base of people and have clear lines of those accountability so that when they're engaging in sensing and seizing, they're actually mechanisms to make sure that they're sensing the changes in their people that they need. And they're able to make decisions about how to act in ways that are responsive to the needs of the members themselves. Um, and then commitment is what is the extent to which you have that kind of commitment throughout the organization to be able to, um, to be able to adapt and, and, and have people with you in um, all of these moments. And so often, you know, we live in a culture right now that's a culture of exit, meaning whenever people don't like what an organization is, tending, is doing, they tend to just leave. And right now, the organizations that we found that were most effective were really good at building not a culture of exit, but a culture of voice, right? Of having people, when people disagree with you, instead of ha having the impulse to leave, the impulse was to try to figure out how can I try to voice my concerns so that I can have my voice heard, right? And that only worked in organizations that actually had mechanisms of voice available to them. Well, there you go. Fascinating stuff. That was uh, Professor Hanny Han, uh, Prisms of the People. And uh, coming up next, because it's now the end of Solidarity Breakfast, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And this is a song for... Perhaps. It's called Perhaps, Perhaps. Oh, yeah, let me find it again. It's all disappearing. I was, I was all so perfectly worked out. Anyway, it's uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and it's goodbye from me, Annie. <laughs>
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.